0: And that's to start getting into the influence and the legacy of Edgar Allan Poe. I don't think there's many horror writers out there that haven't been influenced and haven't read Poe, you know? Oh, man. Yeah, he is is like the grandfather of the genre in so many ways. You know, there's a
1: direct line from H.P. Lovecraft to Edgar Allan Poe, and then from H.P. Lovecraft to someone like Stephen King, and then from Stephen King to so many modern authors, right? Like, it's just like the lineage is there. They're all connected. Welcome, friends, to episode 288 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss the life of Edgar Allan Poe in his 1839 short story, The Fall of the House of Usher. I feel like this one's truly been a long time in the coming. Like, we talk all the time about that. Like, oh, we've been waiting on this one. But, like, Edgar Allan Poe is such a big name that we have yet to get to. There's been so many adaptations of his work. Uh, I'm really excited to get into it here. And we're going to try and do a bunch uh, in this coverage.
0: Yeah, I personally love Edgar Allan Poe. I think he was one of those uh, top tier authors, I feel like, that you learn about in school and like, you know, your Shakespeare's, your Poe's, your uh, Mary Shelley, like those types of authors that you read these older materials from that I really connected with, like as a teenager in high school feeling very angsty and emo. Edgar Allan Poe came along and told these like horror stories that that were very angsty as well, but also like just were intriguing and and kept my interest in in ways that like some of you know, of course, like a Frankenstein does but this the this i don't know he just means a lot to me and kind of as an icon for for gothic horror and, and that kind of yeah. stuff in general i've always respected him and, and just kind of love his 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 overall vibe absolutely man i mean I, i'm right there with you as
1: a, as a sad you know melancholy emo youth. Uh I used to love Edgar Allan Poe and read his works. I you know, the I have this bound Barnes and Noble edition up behind me on the wall that I've had since those years. He's all of that. And then also he is that like well respected, one of the most famous author authors of all time, I think. Uh he he is so well renowned. It we'll go through his bio on this episode. There's so much interesting stuff to get into there. Uh, just a tragic, just tortured Figure who was everything you would imagine from reading his work—that was the man. Um, yep. Like he lived it. Um, it, it. There's so much to get into there. Um, and then we're going to get into the Mike Flanagan adaptation and our following two episodes, where we're going to dive into that. And uh, we looked at the the names of the episodes, and a lot of them correlate to short stories from Edgar Allan Poe. And we realized that this was going to kind of be an anthology series that is based off of The Fall of the House of Usher in an overarching way. Um, but in the individual episodes, I assume they're going to be heavily influenced by the reference to short stories. So we're going to save some of those short stories for later. But for this first one, we're going to focus in on a few that I that I know have like a, a, a just an overall influence on it. Obviously, The Fall of the House of Usher, the titular story, but then also uh, the cast of Amontillado. Um, supposedly plays a pretty big role in this. So we're going to talk about that short story. And then, of course, The Raven, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's probably most famous work of all of them. Yeah. Um, so we'll get into that one on this episode as well. So we have a lot of stuff ahead of us.
0: The Raven and for some reason, Pit and the Pendulum are, are two of his like major stories that stand out to me uh, that, that I remember. Okay. From... See, the Telltale Heart was the one I think for me that made an immediate impression yeah yeah i forgot about that. there's
1: I mean, so many though i mean obviously the fall of the house of usher super famous Cask of amontillado like so many
0: there there are, the cask and and uh fall of the house of usher i hadn't read before so it's, oh cool it's okay
1: awesome yeah i think uh i definitely read fall of the house of usher i think Cask of amontillado I actually had not read in its entirety at least um so that was that was a fun experience we'll get to those later on um but before we get to any of that first thing i want to do is congratulate you Uh, You recently went on vacation, and I got the text message letting me know that you and my sister, who you've been dating throughout the entire recording of this podcast, are now engaged. So, yay!
0: (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Long time coming. Uh, We're very excited. You know, it felt like the right time. It was a really amazing trip, and, and, you know, just so happy. So, you know, excited for the future. Got a wedding coming up. Yeah, so if you're a longtime listener of the podcast,
1: hopefully you're excited for James as well. Let him know. Uh, if you if you follow us on social media, um, you know finally the, you know I feel like it, it's a true coming together. You will be my
0: brother-in-law right. <laughs> at, at at long last. It's a lot easier <laughs> to describe the podcast as brother-in-laws <laughs> rather than it's my my sister's boy, long-term boyfriend. You
1: know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to welcoming you to the family officially, man. It's it's yeah. I'm I'm really happy for you too. Uh, so, so happy to hear all of that. And yeah, we I, we I just figured we had to share that with the listeners before we can really move on. Yeah. A couple other points I wanted to make before we get into everything. First off, and this is a big one, we are planning to have a guest on our final episode of The Fall of the House of Usher. And that is John Langan, the author of The Fisherman, which won the Bram Stoker Award, I think, in 2016. Um, I'm in the middle of reading that book right now, having a great time with it. And uh, he's he's an excellent writer. I'm excited to have him on Horror Writer. So I thought it would be appropriate to bring someone on like that to help us close out the coverage. And I'm going to be really interested to hear his takes on the show and his takes on Edgar Allan Poe and all of that. Definitely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you can't and that's to to start getting into the influence and the the legacy of Edgar Allan Poe. I don't think there's many horror writers out there that haven't been influenced and and have haven't read Poe, you know, oh man. Yeah, he is. He's like the grandfather of the genre in so many ways.
1: You know, there's there's a direct line from H.P. Lovecraft. To Edgar Allan Poe, and then from H.P. Lovecraft to someone like Stephen King, and then from Stephen King to so many modern, modern authors, right? Like, it's
0: just like the lineage is there. They're all connected. And with the Fall of the House of Usher being a haunted house story, I couldn't help but think about this story, Fall of the House of Usher, influencing... The Haunting of Hill House, Shirley Jackson's work. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's another, like one of those branches right in the tree of horror.
1: Um, yeah, I'm not like an expert on all this stuff, but I do like that as we're continuing to hit these icons, it starts like slotting in in my mind. Like, oh, okay, this is where that came from. And I can see where the influence was.
0: And is right? somebody else who's finally, I mean, of course I knew the influence was there. so. Obviously, the, the influence is there. But Neil Gaiman, so inspired by Poe, he feels like a, a continuation of some of the stuff that Poe is doing in a lot of I, ways. I know there's a video of him
1: re- uh, reading The Raven that he he put out one Halloween. He's like in a like candlelit room. And it's, you know, you know how good of a reader he is, of course. And then he's doing this rendition of The Raven. And I thought it was excellent. Uh, maybe if I can find that, I'll put it in the show notes as a, as a link. Um, cause that was cool. Yeah, definitely influenced so many, so many have been, um, I guess just overall reading Edgar Allan Poe this time of year, it felt right to me. Um, oh, yeah. I was, I was really enjoying this one.
0: I mean, I, I was on a cross country trip. I was in, you know, California, Southern California. We were at Joshua tree and Sequoia and Yosemite. And then we went over to Big Sur and the whole time I'm listening to Poe stories and it's in October. It's cool over there. Um, I you know I think I'll associate this this trip and this engagement with Poe in some way too going forward because <laughs> I was listening to it, uh and and yeah just I'm excited it's my favorite time of year it's just October yeah it's great it's the best time of year it's the changing of the season and then it leads into like a nice end of the year with the caveat that like you know most of the stuff is very depressing, but if you you can and you can indulge in it in that way or you can view it as someone experiencing grief that you're reading about too you know i think i think that's like when i was a teenager that's what i was latching on to is i was like yeah you know all of the feelings that that i couldn't articulate at the time he was he was able to um and then in this i'm i'm just enjoying the artistry Uh, this on along you know i of course i connect on an emotional level but just like especially the raven like the it's so endlessly referenced and it's so iconic as a work of poetry. And it, at a time when I was kind of the kind of kid who thought that I wouldn't like poetry, this this allowed me, it opened that door for me and got me into poetry. I agree. It was one of the first poems I probably ever really
1: latched onto and really, really enjoyed. Um, we will get into that one. There, It has an interesting legacy, history behind it. Um, all of that stuff we'll get into when we get to The Raven. Um, but first, got to talk about the man's life, because I think that will give us context for everything we're about to read and throughout this coverage as we go into the stories and compare them to what Mike Flanagan is doing on the show, um, I think it's important to have the context in which these were written in and the context of his life. So Edgar Allan Poe was born in 1809. He's an American writer, poet, author, editor, literary critic, best known for his poetry and short stories, particularly his tales of mystery and the macabre. He is widely regarded as a central figure of romanticism and Gothic fiction in the United States and of American literature. Poe was one of the country's earliest practitioners of the short story and is considered the inventor of the detective fiction genre, as well as the significant contributor in the emerging genre of science fiction. He is the first well-known American writer to earn a living through writing alone, but it resulted in a financially difficult life and career.
0: Poe might be one of the most, he might be the most legendary American author of all time. Like other people came along, your Hemingways and the people like that that people should point to. I mean i think you could make an argument for poe absolutely i think he was that early author for america to like put put america on the map 1809 Uh, yeah in in a time when i think europe thought that they ran the show as far as art was concerned
1: absolutely yeah and and what what a lasting impression he's just made on the world of literature um so as a young boy he was born to um actors david and elizabeth poe so his father, David, would abandon his family when Poe was, uh, when Edgar, I'm going to refer to him as Edgar because I want to just call him Poe, but like there's a lot of Poe's in this story, so I need to be careful. <laughs> uh, his father, David, would leave the, fa- would abandon his family when Edgar was only one year old. Um, he was then raised by his mother, who was a traveling actor. Um, he talks about having early memories of seeing her on stage, and when he talks about this later on in life, He refers to her as being like captivating and alluring and how she would just like enthrall the audience. And she was this like otherworldly figure to him at a young age. But she would contract tuberculosis and die when he was just three years old, in which he would spend uh, her illness at at her bedside as just a small child. So he would watch his mother die and then he would be orphaned. So he would go on to live with his foster parents, and that was um, John and Francis Allen. They would raise him to be a young gentleman. They, they gave him a good education. Um, they taught him manners. They taught him. Um, they nurtured his young, like, artistic leanings because he was immediately drawn to poetry. Um, he was precocious. He was, like, this this brilliant kid. Um, and he loved his, his um, foster mother. His foster father was this tobacco merchant. And he was kind of distant. He was very severe um he while providing for this upbringing um was not a particularly uh fond figure of of a young edgars so in his early years he would develop a crush on this woman named jane jane stannard who was an older woman it was like a mother of like one of his friends and he developed a crush on her it was like his first ever crush um and then she died of brain cancer when he was 15 years old so this other woman that he then developed a crush on she dies right Wow. Um so another very tragic moment. Um he was said to uh go and like cry on her grave. Like he was that like taken with 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 grief mm-hmm. after she passed away. Um and then shortly after that, his foster mother herself would then also get tuberculosis, which they called consumption at the time. Um and while she was ill, his foster father, John would start having affairs where he would actually like bring the women over to the house while Edgar was there. And he did not like that. Um, He very much thought that, you know, women are to be revered and respected and all this stuff. And he was very romantic and he did not approve of his father's infidelities. And his father at that point was fed up with him and sends him off to school. He's like, get out of here. You're going, you know, I'm going to send you to school so that you're not going to be bothering me while in school. He got known for, I mean, he was like, first off, he was poor because when he got sent there, his father didn't give him any money. He was like, you're cut off. Um, he went to the University of Virginia and only its second year opened after it opened. It was brand new college, wow. right? Um, and he's there. He has his room. He, he has this like dilapidated room that he draws all over. And Apparently, he's actually quite visually artistically talented as well. And people at the time were not sure whether he's going to end up becoming like a painter or a poet. Um, but he would he he decorated his room with his own drawings, and he would welcome people over, and he would do readings of his work at the time to them. Um, so he became known as this eccentric figure even on campus. His foster mother would shortly after die, um, eighteen twenty nine. She dies of tuberculosis, and now uh, already at this point he has lost two mother figures to tuberculosis, and basically been abandoned by two fathers. Um, as well as losing an early crush, right? And he would end up joining the army to kind of say, screw you to his foster father. Like, he's like, I can do this on my own. And he he even wrote in a letter about how he's like, you're going to regret this because I'm going to become important. And, you know, I'm going to be someone that history will will remember. And so he was definitely kind of out to say, screw you to his foster father. Um, And, you know, obviously, he, he did do that, right? He is—he is definitely famous. <laughs> Hell of a motivator, I guess.
0: Huh.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, he rose up the ranks in the army. He did well there. He went to—he went to West Point for a little while. So he was actually at very athletic, even though he would downplay that later in life. Like he would talk about how, like, oh, you know, it was—it was nothing. But like, he was actually quite athletic in his youth. Um, but at the same time, you know, the romantic poet. At this time, he's trying to make a living writing and he uh, would self-publish a couple of books of poetry um, because at the time, like, po- publishing was still in its inf- infancy. There was no copyright laws. These publishers would see a poor ar- uh, author like Poe and they knew they could take advantage of him. Mm. So he and he had no leverage. Um, so yeah, he, he, he was trying to make it as a writer, but it was not something he could do to make ends meet. So he was incredibly poor. Um, he would publish The, the Telltale Heart, um, in 1831, but the the publisher told him it was too loud and, uh, you know, to tone it down, essentially. Um, and because of that, they didn't pay him hardly anything for it. Huh. Um, I, I saw kinds of different like he was getting like nine bucks for stuff like he sold the he, he later sold the Raven. I think I saw fourteen dollars is what he got paid for the Raven.
0: Was the only money you ever saw for it? While reading the Raven, I was thinking a lot about like just the level of difficulty, like that you introduce when you're when you're rhyming and the way that poetry is so rhythmic and and repetitive in this way. Um, and I was thinking, like, man, like, did he write this in an afternoon? Because there's these famous <laughs> stories about people who write it in an afternoon. But when I start yeah. thinking about poetry and like, it's not it's not very very short. Like, it's not a haiku. It's no, not yeah. it's not a it's couple of stanzas it's quite i feel like in in terms of a poem it's it's fairly long and and it just got me thinking about like how difficult this is in a time when you know i assumed he wasn't being paid well for some reason i remembered poe being a figure that wasn't revered in his time but you're saying that he was so he got famous uh, a little bit especially later in life um and
1: especially after the raven which we'll get to Um, that brought him fame but not money because he didn't get paid well for it and he would go around and do readings and stuff but from what I was
0: seeing he wasn't getting paid for that either. Got it So yeah just thinking about like how much you have to love the craft if you're not going to be you know compensated well for it and I guess it does bring him fame but I don't know that he was seeking that out so yeah I don't know uh, yeah it's it's just really impressive stuff Back to his personal
1: life because again I think this is quite important 1831 after the death of Francis his foster mother, um, he is looking for somewhere to live. And he he winds up contacting his aunt, Clem. Um, his aunt, Clem, is living with her eight-year-old daughter named Virginia in Baltimore. And he goes to live with them. While there, he is welcomed into the family. And he finally feels like he has like a stable, stable living condition. Um, goes on to write The Telltale Heart, however. So all this time, he is writing really dark literature at the same time. So it's like, clearly, he had demons throughout his entire life. I mean, he had been through a lot already. Totally. Right? Yeah. Like we're talking 1831, he was born in 1809, so he's 22 at this point. Where he goes to yeah. do this, goes to live. And with I him. remember this
0: being the point in in uh, the story of of Edgar Allan Poe that I'm like, man, I wish really wish he didn't get with your like really young sister. <laughs> I, think, I think right. That's the <laughs> yeah. That's how so the story we'll get, goes. we're about to
1: get into that. Yeah. So uh, his cousin. Okay. Um, so in 1834, he is summoned to John Allen's deathbed so because his, his foster father, John, is now on his deathbed, where John threatens him with a cudgel from the deathbed and tells him that he will not be in the will and will not leave him a dime. So he is stricken from the will because
0: they, they hate each other at this point. Yeah. Um, so that sounds like something right out of an Edgar Ground Poe story, right? <laughs> And while I'm thinking about it that's a great uh, thing to to note is that every time it's just the narrator or this or that in in, in his stories I'm always assuming and inserting Poe personally like I'm envisioning Edgar Allan <laughs> Poe as yeah. the narrator in in both um, The Fall of the House of Usher and The Raven I just assumed that it's a Poe insert. <laughs> it's like yeah it's like kind of like a version of him I think that's kind of safe to say honestly since yeah. usually they're
1: unnamed. Um So in 1835, he would become an editor of the Southern Literary Messenger, which was kind of a new publication at the time. But he he butted heads with his bosses. He was a difficult person to work with, from what I understand. But he earned a nickname as the Tomahawk Man because he would have these brutal reviews where he would review like the the popular authors at the time and just be scathing. And he was like called the Hatchet Man. Like he, he just was brutal in his criticism of other authors. And this would actually become important later too, where like he made a lot of enemies with a lot of the most famous authors at the time, um, picked fights with them, even like accused Henry Wadsworth Longfellow of being a plagiarist, which like pissed off a lot of people because that was like a beloved figure at the time. Um, You know, very combative. Um, Now when he's, he's like living somewhere else at this time. So he he had lived with his aunt for a few years and then he moved when he got this job as an editor. But while he's at this job, he gets a letter from his aunt and she says that Um, his cousin virginia age 12 is going to be sent to another household um, with this other guy and then the idea is that he will live with with this other family um, and perhaps marry at some point this other into this other family this virginia would you're saying right virginia would okay edgar loses it at this um he writes this like Letter where he's like, I'm writing through tears. I, I'm I'm so upset. And he's like addressing Virginia directly. He's like, you need to make this decision for yourself. In it, he calls it his. He calls her his sister, his cousin, and his wifey. Um, all this Did stuff. Did he coin the term he, wifey? I don't know. It was in the letter though. Like direct quote. Um, he he's like profu- profusely talking about how much he adores her and how you know they basically are are meant to be together. Um, and because of this, th- he is able to talk his aunt Clem out of it. And instead, he and his s- his cousin are married uh, when he is 26 years old and she is 12, almost 13. They knew this was bad because yeah. they forged her ages age 21 on the marriage certificate, certificate
0: Gross. because they knew it would have been a scandal. Yeah, it's disgusting. And um, uh, in, in, so, otherwise, like somebody who I really, really like, I remember that being something yeah. that I learned about and I was like, oof. yeah
1: so uh you know this is an important part of his of his story and i want to give it the the view that i was that i got because i I watched a couple of documentaries about edgar Allan poe and they were given given by his biographers and you could tell that these guys really wanted to cast this as not being as bad as it seems um and here was some of their reasoning and then we could talk about what we might may not believe but um they said that he tr- their relationship was mysterious. It was said to be much more of a brother sister relationship. Um, his love for her seemed to be in the way that he loved a lot of women and that he would like revere them as angels. It would be like they were his muse. They were the- his reason for living. He-, he really definitely saw women as like another, you know, species. It was like, oh, women, they're they're all angels. And um, they were they were there for him to worship so he worshiped her in that way and um supposedly some of his friends claimed that the their relationship was not sexual um until like maybe much later in the marriage um but it, nobody has any proof of that it's just what people say right. um, and was that they're just them trying to save face you know convince themselves i you know i don't know supposedly they had a very loving relationship he uh, would teach her like he he uh would play on the, like they would play together on the piano go for long walks together madly devoted to one another um she would write poetry about poe himself like edgar himself um there's all this stuff that, that shows that their relationship was this like romance right um but of course underneath all of that she was quite young um and even if you try and say it wasn't sexual there's no proof of that and i would also say a lot of his work deals with guilt and like a gnawing guilt guilt that causes madness in you um and one wonders if he might have felt a little bit guilty about this situation even as he you know sought it out
0: i'm sure he was conflicted about it i don't think it makes it much better in my my modern perspective i, I just yeah. you know it, it's just a, a red flag to me as, as for, sure. the, for a person like that it sounds like he wanted it sounds like she would be married off fairly young also to this other family so maybe he yeah she unclear was... like when they would have actually gotten married but that was the plan was for yeah. her to get married to this so other maybe family. he thought that he was saving her from a certain fate and maybe it was yeah. not weirdly sexual until they you know they did love each other Some brother, people thing, but people claim that he might have been
1: asexual but i don't see a lot of evidence of that he was a lot of courtships with other women yeah it, again it's just it's hard because it was so long ago right we're, and we're basing this off of all these accounts that the people who wrote them are long dead so who knows yeah.
0: I guess just take everything with a grain of salt and realize that like.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I kind of probably not great. Yeah. We're hearing the best, like most sanitized version of this probably at this point. So 1835, he marries Virginia. Um, They would have about six years of wedded bliss before one day she is playing the piano and uh, stops to cough. And when she does, she coughs up a spot of blood. Which is something that he has seen twice before in his life Mm -hmm. and sure enough uh she came down with tuberculosis at age 19 um and she would live for five years in terrible health um the fact that she lived five years is credited to the fact that she was so young and vivacious um but during that whole time poe would write some of his like most notable works but this is like while, during the protracted death of his of his beloved wife, who he was clearly just madly in love with. Like that, you know, however you feel about it, sure. he was. And mm-hmm. that fueled a lot of his writings at the time. The Raven, which would be published in 1845, I believe was written while she was still alive. But he was writing it as sort of a projection of his mental state. And he's sort of this character that he's writing is mourning this loss of Lenore. And mm-hmm. that's his way of working through it. and um, I think he was sort of projecting out like how how mad he was going to become um The other thing he's doing is picking fights with these people. Um, apparently, he also like gotten he, he got into a fist fight with a fellow author um he he was he was you know all over the place. oh, he gets a, he gets a meeting with the president of the United States because he's going to try and get a job in government huh. um, and he shows up to the meeting drunk and his like cloaks on inside out. And um, like the president's son sees this and like sends him away. And he's like, no, 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 you're not going to go see the president like this. Come back when you're sober, sends him away. He comes back later and he's like sober this time. But then when he meets the president, he like everything's going well. But then he tries to get him to subscribe to the magazine. (laughs) He's like he tries to convince him to buy subscriptions to the magazine. He's the editor. Oh, yeah, man. Check out my SoundCloud yeah exactly like he just would self sabotage in these moments um and it was like that didn't that didn't rub the president the right way. This was President John Tyler, by the way, which I know nothing about yeah um yeah i mean he's he's at all this time he's being described as someone who has fits of madness he you know he has obviously like all these bouts of alcoholism. there's some talk about while um Virginia was ill that he actually had flirtatious relationship with another woman who was a poet and Virginia like kind of encouraged it unclear whether or not she encouraged it because she felt that like she had a good um effect on him like when whenever she was around he wouldn't drink um it seems like Virginia was maybe worried about him drinking himself to death and and I think she she um she knew she was going to die like she would talk about how she her, knew her death was imminent so maybe she was hopeful that he would be able to move on with someone else who would be good for him because it, it was clear at this point in his life that like he he needed to have a woman that he that he was you know finding after to take care of him you know that was like a, such a part of his life um uh that wouldn't work out with that other woman um and then Virginia would die 1847 5 years after the onset of the illness um during that time he published the raven got 14 dollars for it um it was something that would catapult him into fame people started to call him the raven that became his new nickname um there was even a story about like children would like chase him around and like like try and like uh mess with him and like call him raven and all this stuff and he would like turn around and be like nevermore and they would all like go running away and stuff Like so apparently he like really enjoyed it and um like lived it up and so he became kind of famous for this he would give these these lectures that at first were really renowned but then later in his life um became sort of infamous for him showing up drunk and being like incoherent and well, and it,
0: it being a mess. And it seems like he's clearly dealing with some sort of some form of PTSD, right? Throughout his life. He's had all these, Absolutely. Think about all these tragedies we've talked about, and, right? And he's he's coping with alcohol. Tuberculosis which, killed his mother, his foster mother. And now his
1: like love of his life all
0: within not that long a time. Yeah. Uh, terrible stuff. So you can definitely understand like where he is, um, you know, just trauma wise. And then, you know, he's he's bandaging it with alcohol and he turns that turns into alcoholism. Well, and and no, opium I, I thought famously things, there's like some opium abuse as well. Right? Yeah. I'd say opium yeah. seems to have been in there.
1: Um, the stuff I was reading didn't like outline at what point he became involved with that, but yeah. it seems to have been in the mix. I thought um, there's
0: stories of him like in ditches and this and that, and just disheveled. And so that we'll get there. Okay. Um, so
1: after Virginia dies, he would live his most erratic few years. Um, he would go and like lay himself on her gravesite and like cry himself to sleep and like sleep in the graveyard overnight. Like he, he would do that frequently. People would find him there. Yeah. Um, he was like, he was that to a T, right? Like the most like romantic Gothic emo guy. Yeah. Um, this is him in his late thirties. Um, but he did, um, start courting several other women at the time. Um, but there's some debate about whether or not any of this was actual romance or if he just like wanted to, like, he knew that he needed to be with somebody that like, he was, he was courting, um, this one woman who was like a rich poet who was like in high society and their courtship went a long way. He even proposed to her and she accepted. Um, but then her mother came to him and tried to get him to sign a document that said that, um, if anything were to happen to her, he would not receive any of her estate or any of her money, and she this infuriated like a... him
0: so much that he called off the wedding. So they okay. didn't end up getting married. Did she think, based on his work, that he might be like a like some sort of murderer or something? Is <laughs> yeah, that, is I don't
1: that... Know. Wow. maybe? Um, but definitely saw like maybe there was another motive going on here. Maybe it was something to do with her wealth. At the same time that he was courting her, he was also writing these letters to another married woman, where he was like professing his love to her and saying that um, he he's eagerly awaiting news of her husband's death <laughs> um, and stuff like that. Um, it it wow. was he was. And at the time, this was his heaviest drinking. He was a mess. He lived in all these different locations. He kept moving to all these different little houses and cottages. Um, they were poor throughout all of this. Right. Like, the, you know, when he's living with Virginia, they're poor. They're living in a little cottage, um, you know, didn't have much to their name. 1849 comes along. I believe that's the year he's 40 years old and he um he has now written his poem annabelle lee which was his like elegy and um his pronouncement of love for uh for virginia and he does it through this char- this kind of fictional character annabelle lee but if you read that poem it's 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 about this you know heartbroken guy who's in love with annabelle lee who he compares to the angels and, and you know he talks about he wants to go and like sleep in her tomb by the by the seaside and it's a very it's a very lovely poem i remember really enjoying it um and it really you know he was obsessed with this idea of like women and the people he loved and how they would die and then like the the mystery of death and what happens to us beyond the grave and trying to pierce the veil and um he wanted to join them you know he was he was very Um,
0: self-destructive self-destructive
1: in that way you know yeah um often sick often drunk suffering bouts of insanity he apparently told friends that he thought there were assassins after him um and this also gets into some of the mystery so the he was very paranoid um and then he goes to uh virginia to tell his aunt clem about uh, he's, he's going to become engaged again to a woman that he like knew when he was 17. Uh, her name's Elmira Shelton. He was going to tell uh, uh, Maria Clem, his aunt, about this. And apparently he's seen. And when people see him, he looks pale and sick. He does not look good. Um, but he goes missing in the city um, for a few days. And then he's finally found in a ditch, semi-conscious. He's in Baltimore Street. Um, and he's wearing somebody else's clothing. Uh, he's delirious. They take him to the hospital. Um, eventually, he gets taken to the hospital. Um, and while he's there, he's just like talking to, you know, phantasms, they call it. And he's just like raving. Um, doesn't make hardly any sense at all. Um, and, apparent- and supposedly, his last words were, God help my poor soul. And then he dies that day. Um, it is a mystery what exactly caused his death. Um, he again was found in this confused state. He was feverish and, and you know, out of his mind a little bit and uh, unclear. The one one of the prevailing theories that I've heard that I I like, um, of course, I think uh, there was an episode of Buzzfeed Unsolved where they actually talk about Agrela Poe's death and they go over some different um options for what might have happened so maybe i'll link that in the show notes um so if you want to hear some alternate possibilities check that out but one of my favorite ones was that he might have been the victim of what they call a political kidnapping because it was election day the day that he was found and what would happen would be there were groups of these like thugs who would go around and they would kidnap people drug them beat them up and then they would send them in to vote repeatedly and change their clothes between every time um, and just compel them to to do these multiple votes to try and, you know, get their get their guy elevated, whoever it was. <laughs> and so the theory is that that would explain why he was wearing someone else's clothes and was so delirious and out of it and that maybe he had been drugged and
0: beaten and and forced to do this. I mean, um, horrific. Which yeah. there's some evidence that could have been the case. Yeah. I, uh, you know, with the current political state and previous elections and people talking about multiple people voting multiple times and everything like that, it's just, I don't know, darkly funny to me. But at the same time, yeah, like, like the history of, what, of this country and what was going on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't remember what office the vote was for.
1: Like, I didn't see that. I'm sure it's out there, but.
0: Yeah, who knows? It'd people just yeah, just don't, they want to, people want to cheat, it sounds like, you know, cheat the system. But anyway, uh, yeah. the, a tragic that is such a, you know, tortured, obviously tortured individual, but like an incredible artist, like once in a generation artist dies like that in such a random way, too. And, and maybe he was, you know, he did, you said he made a lot of enemies, who knows, like. Yeah, and he talked about how there were assassins after him. Yeah. He used to tell people that, and then he would die like shortly thereafter in
1: mysterious circumstances. So. Yeah. There's a lot of debate about what actually happened to him and it's, it's unknown, um, but I, I think that all of that gives us good context and we can kind of look at this through so we can start to contextualize when things were coming out and, and when these different works occurred and what
0: he might have been, you know, working through at the time. Yeah. And we're going to, um, you know, obviously next week, we're going to move into more of his work uh, alongside that show. So it's cool that we'll get to talk about Poe more than, more than just this episode.
1: Absolutely. It's going to be, a, you know, throughout all of it. But first off, we're going to talk about the fall of the House of Usher, which is our titular story that the Flanagan adaptation takes its name from and I think takes its sort of like overarching plot from. Um, so we're going to talk about what happens in the story. We have not seen any of the show. So if this ends up spoiling anything from the show, it's only incidental in the fact that this is the plot of the, the short story that's been out for hundreds of years. Um, so, you know, our apologies on that. But, like, you know, we're just going to talk about the story um, and and why it's important um, and what happens in it. Um, I would like to actually read a little little section from this because I think, you know, Poe's writing is so beautiful. I wanted to, to give him some some reads here. I had been passing alone on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country and at length found myself as the shades of evening drew on Within view of the melancholy house of Usher. Uh, and this is the, the arrival of that narrator, right? Um, and he says, I looked upon the scene before me, upon the mere house and the simple landscape, features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant eye-like windows, upon a few rank sedges, and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees with an utter depression of soul, which I cannot compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to the after dream of the reveler upon opium, the bitter lapse into everyday life, the hideous dropping off of the veil. There was an iciness, a sinking, a sickening of the heart, an unredeemed dreariness of thought, which no goading of the imagination could torture into the aught of the sublime. Um, And this is the kind of stuff, like, he's, he's so talented clearly as a writer yeah. um but he he crafted these stories and people say that this is one of the best examples where everything about this story it's like a totalitarian. uh what was it called like there was a, a a total mastery of language and detail and everything that he is describing plays into the themes and plays into the plot and it plays into like it's all so wrought um and this became like very influential going forward for other writers but um yeah, this is about this
0: narrator going to the house of Usher. The story starts off and, and, you know, very early on you get the sense that the the house and the the actual legacy of the, the people, the family, are very tied together. And the way that he does that, I think um, it makes it so that, like, whenever he's saying something, whether it's about the house or whether it's about the family, they're kind of one and the same. And I found that to be like so fascinating throughout. It's dilapidated, but and then so are the residents, and they're like. They, he talks they, about the
1: vegetation
0: is like sentient and it's like, alive. Everything's it's alive. It's out the to house, get him and like the, the, <laughs> the, the every object, every ha- it's it's very cool in that way. I don't know if it's a, probably not the first haunted house story, but this being a, a, pointing to haunted house stories and thinking about where they've come. Yeah, the man, haunting of Hill House, haunting of Hill House, among others. Uh, it's it's just so evocative of. The, you can just see the the influence that that's there and the way that he built and, and then the dread that's that's there throughout like it, this is a 200 year old story roughly and it still builds tension and dread in a super deliberate way and yeah. ma- maybe i definitely think that it can be difficult to read at times because just because of the nature of of the prose it's like wording too right like if you if you if you take your time with it and like yeah that's exactly it too is is like if you take your time with it and really understand what the author's saying and, and like you said everything's so deliberate and and yeah. done to for the story like it, it's like when we talk about scenes in film like every single thing in frame was meticulously put there because in some way it's furthering the story and that's what poe is doing with his language here um yeah. and yeah I, I just thought that the tie and the leading, as much as I kind of knew where this was going because of it being redone by other other in, in ways being redone uh, by other authors down the line, it, it was such a high degree of difficulty to to keep me interested in it and it did the whole way through. Um, it's relatively short. it is a short yeah. story, but um yeah, th- there's a couple of twists and turns that I didn't see coming that that we can talk about.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about, there's Roderick Usher. He is the sort of me- uh, patriarch of this house. And they sh- in, And when the unnamed narrator shows up, he's learned that Roderick's sister, Madeline, has fallen ill, um, and they're twins, apparently. There's some apparent references to the fact that their relationship might actually be an incestuous uh, romantic relationship as well as being related. So there's some... D- debate about whether or not that sort of sin is is weighing upon the house and um you know roderick is is he's very guilty about the whole situation throughout um he himself is ill and and you know talks about it or maybe he is also a hypochondriac and like he's not actually ill but he's playing it up like he is it's you know
0: yeah it's up for debate in in If we think of Poe as an insert here, you can start thinking about, like, maybe what he was feeling in terms of incestuous, like, borderline incestuous relationships. So that's
1: what I I was referencing earlier. This is 1839. He publishes this. So he's writing it a little bit before that. This is after he's married Virginia. While they're still in their happy period of their marriage before she's actually come down with an illness. But this is a story about a incestuous, potentially, couple where the guilt and the 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 um, attitude of Roderick towards Madeline, um, it kind of seems to be a self-fulfilling fulfilling prophecy, right? And how he's condemning his own home to ruin based off of the guilt he feels. And yeah, it's hard not to wonder if maybe there's a little bit of guilt being felt by, by Edgar here. Um, and then the other thing I think that's worth noting is that this Roderick is like a wealthy almost father-like figure um whose house has fallen to ruin um and this is also a time in which john is is you know falling ill and like telling him he's not going to be in the will and all this stuff so like there's you know potential influences there as well i think
0: yeah. I didn't pick up on incestuous vibes specifically between the two, but very weird and and uh, close. And then yeah. the way that he mourns the sister is almost I mean, of course, you would mourn in almost the same way that you would a lover, But he does mourn her in a really dramatic way. Yeah, um, that could, very that dramatic. Could... He he wants
1: he won't let her be buried anywhere. Typical because he's worried about her bo- her body being like stolen for uh, by like doctors or something for, like, research. And apparently this was, like, a real concern at the time. Um, As so we've probably talked about in, like, the, the Mary Shelley Frankenstein coverage, like, similar things were going on in America. So because of this, um, he wants to bury her in the tomb within the house itself. Um, and they go down and, like, you know, visit her in death. And um, they see her at one point, and, like, the narrator notes that her, like, cheeks are rosy. Um and She's almost described as if she's alive, right? Um, and then we get this scene later where Roderick is is overcome with guilt, and he's like losing it and and the narrator comes in and is like, let me try and calm you down by like telling you this story and he starts reciting to him this poem. Um, But during that um, Roderick's raving about how she's actually alive and that they buried her alive in the tomb, his sister. Um and you know the narrator's like no that, that can't be the case but then they start hearing these noises while they're like he's yeah. like reading him this poem of like sounds like something coming out of a tomb and it sounds like something walking down the halls and well and yeah. while
0: we're talking about that I wanted to ask you like obviously for for the dual effect of like you know this this figure I forget his name right now is fighting a dragon in this medieval yeah. story I don't remember the I, name either yeah I have to think that like outside of the fact that like the, there's correlations between the sounds and some of the things that are going on like a house. Um, but like the the dragon, I feel like has to represent some thing that they're fighting to overcome. And I feel like it's a metaphor for maybe something that the usher house, like some failing on their part or something that they yeah. did, I, I, can't, I couldn't really put together exactly what I felt like the dragon meant in that story. Cause like slaying a dragon to yeah. get the shield and then the shield falls to the ground, all that stuff. Um I felt like there was something about, you know, some well, it's also fa- like, foul deeds or something. I
1: do I do think you're are there absolutely is that. Um I can't I can't like spell it out for you because again I'm not like super familiar with, with the history of that poem. But I think there is definitely a lot of also correlations between like fighting a monster and there being a monster in theory, like coming for you. And the and the sounds of the story are like reflected in the sounds they're actually hearing. Like whenever there would be some dramatic moment in the, in the in the poem, they would hear a sound. Um so this is creeping dread as something's coming into the room yeah. and then the you know, the door flies open and it's Madeline and she's, you know, covered in blood and she's like crawled her way out of the crypt and she like jumps onto Roderick.
0: All the noises were her, like all the things that yeah. they hear oh, yeah. that were yeah, her trying to get out of the tomb, screeching and clawing and banging, that kind of stuff.
1: Well, and that was another big fear at the time. So he's writing, like, apparently he writes a lot about this. Well, we, we, we circle back to this, but he writes a lot about being buried alive. And, like, this was a big fear at the time. And they had those bells that, like, they would yeah. attach so that if you were buried alive, you could, like, ring them to let people know. Um, yeah. I don't know how often it actually happened that people were buried alive, but it was definitely a big fear that people had that people would pronounce them dead, bury them, and then they'd wake up in a, in a coffin underground. Yeah. Um, and, and, well, and so he's playing with, like, a very common fear also here as he's doing all of this.
0: Yeah. And this correlates a little bit with the uh, cask story that we get in a little bit. Another yeah. buried alive situation. Yeah.
1: he, uh, Our narrator flees the house and then he's looking back at the house and the house like splits open and collapses and falls into the lake. Mm-hmm. And like a really like kind of magical moment, honestly. And it also brings that together of like everything about this house was connected to these characters and the house represented the fall itself and the fracturing of it. Yep. Um, and it goes back to that whole idea that like the vegetation was sentient and like all this stuff like it, like pulls it into the lake. I don't know. Yeah. Um,
0: and yeah. So th- that's how this one ends. The, the house is also repeatedly talked about as a character, like the eyes yeah. of the house and the, you know, the, the there was like a fissure in it that eventually got mm-hmm. larger as the like seemingly as the family got closer to ruin. So did the house in that way there's like, there's a couple of other figures there that I'm not sure
1: what happens to them, but there was like the, there was like the house doctor, um, like a physician was there. There was some servants at times, Um, you know, so, so it was like, clearly there were this, this like wealthy family who had fallen on hard times too. Like they had lost a lot of their fortune, um, which is another repeated thing we see in a lot of like people
0: losing their fortune and then losing their minds over it. Do we, do you think that as our character Roderick was spiraling. Do you think that he knew that he was like? Did he want to bury her alive? What, you know what I mean. Like, what what happened there? Why why did he bury her alive and then say, "Oh my God, we buried her alive"? I know he said eventually he could hear things in the house, and that's why he thought that they had. I don't know. It's this weird self fulfilling prophecy
1: where like he was predicting that she was gonna die, and then she falls ill, and then he decides to bury her in the tomb. Um and and um yeah, it's like why do that if you're not sure, but you know, maybe, maybe he was sure. Cause I guess the way the, the, and the open question is, does she come back as some sort of zombie? Does she come back as some sort of animated corpse? Yeah. And this is a manifestation of the guilt and it's like a revenge from the grave on, because the idea here is also that like Roderick failed her and like his, his, his loss of fortune, you know led to the fall of the house which led to her illness which led to everything so he is culpable for this which is something that edgar Allan poe would feel a lot of guilt about in his life was his inability to provide for virginia and for himself and through for the people he loved um because again he was poor throughout his life so he often felt this guilt of like i can't provide for them i'm I'm failing them um and that that i think manifests here a little bit too yeah
0: just one more thing to mention here the the way that at one point the narrator mentions like the, the people of the town see the family and the house as one and the same as well. The way that they're yeah. tied together in that way. Um, I think it's like a perception thing too. Like their reputation uh sure. is sullied so and that's part of the falling of, of the house.
1: And so this is also what the like titular story is for all of Flanagan's adaptation here. So what an interesting one to like, you know, yeah. couches as, and I've seen a trailer, so I know that it has to deal with the Usher family. There's like multiple members and they're all gathered around. And clearly this is going to be a tragic tale about the fall. Um, that's in the title of the, of the story. So um, it's a very interesting one for him to, to sort of set this all into, and I'm going to be really curious to see how he keeps coming back to this original story, but then also delves into all these other mini stories. We're going to get into in future episodes.
0: It's a really brilliant idea and a cool way to to get to address a lot of Poe's work and kind of have yeah. All the it's characters. like he's doing this
1: Edgar Allan Poe adaptation that kind of like synthesizes it all together. It's yeah. a very neat idea. I like
0: it. I'm excited and I've seen the cast. I haven't even seen the trailer, but I, I'm yeah. I, of the Flanagan stuff, like there's been one or two things here that haven't hit super squarely, but everything else I've been really happy with. And come this time of year, if we can expect like a Flanagan thing around October every two years or so. I'll take it, man. I, I'm I'm a big fan. I, I clearly really a big name in horror
1: right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's get into the Raven. We got to talk about the Raven. This is Poe's most famous piece of work. I think this is the thing that put him on the map. The Baltimore Ravens are named after this poem. Um, <laughs> this is this is very famous. So he
0: was a Baltimore resident, I guess, at some point or another. At then. times,
1: that's where he died. He at times lived there. He lived in a bunch of different houses over the years. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where they got their name from They're Literally, it was like a fan voted name when they, when they got their team and a lot of like Baltimore resident residents voted for the Raven based
0: off of Edgar Allan Poe. They were the Baltimore Colts for a long time either also, but we don't have to get, we don't have time to get into the NFL history, but, but yeah, it is cool. I I mean, whenever they adopted the name, the Ravens, I guess. Well, once they Baltimore Colts left town to Indianapolis, there's a whole thing about it. Yeah. Uh, So it was like a new team when they got a new team right when they got a new team they then voted on it yeah um yeah. i mean it's it's one of the coolest namesakes you could have right like something like something that has like a history to it um mm-hmm. rather than just like a random name like the, I've the Lions that i've always thought it was a rad name for a football or, team <laughs> yeah it's a super cool name this
1: is such a cool story right era and uh, it is a story it's a story and a poem yeah um it's this highly lyrical highly rhythmic very meticulously crafted story and yet it te- it does tell a story of this raven shows up saying nevermore and early on um our narrator uh even says like I-, I can't tell if this nevermore is just something that it just says and doesn't mean anything that's probably what it is right like yeah. he re- he recognizes like it just probably says nevermore that's probably the only word it, know- it knows right right
0: I have so much to say about this story. This yeah. this is my favorite story so far. And it, with my memory of Poe, which is, you know, I haven't read him in a long time that I think this might be my favorite Poe works, especially right now. I'm just so, so yeah. into it. Um, so basic, James. <laughs> I know, I know. But I love no, it. But like, honestly, that's kind of the
1: legacy of the Raven is that it is like it got so popular. All of the poets at the time weighed in on it. William Butler Yeats came out and called it an insincere and vulgar, an execution of a rhythmical trick. Um, you know, Walter, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, "I see nothing in it." Like there were other poets out there just like blasting this thing. Well, he probably it, blasted it. It became them first. hugely popular. Like the average person liked this poem, whereas a lot of other poetry seemed to be designed for the elites out there right like this was designed to be broadly appealing and it was so we're talking about like popular fiction over time and popular poetry yeah um it's also gotten this i think it's dismissed by a lot of modern like poets and a lot of modern criticism as being just like oh it's so like it's so rhythmic and it's so lyrical and it's so like obviously like crafted in a way that um of course everybody loves it like You know, let's move on. Let's all talk about a different poem. We're all over the Raven.
0: And honestly, that's how I felt about it going into reading The Raven. My memory of it was like, okay, yeah, yeah, it's like, it's, I know exactly what it is. But for some reason, reading it this time, I got more out of it. And, and whether I think, I don't necessarily think it's the most clever or like lyrically clever or anything like that. It is repetitive. And it is. I'm saying all
1: of that to play devil's advocate. I love The Raven, man. I, I, yeah, I say, fuck all that. This is a great poem.
0: I'm just trying to say, like, I don't think that the reason I love it is how complex it is. I love it for other reasons. But this idea of, like, man's interpretation on guilt and loss and everything like that. But the way that you can project something onto any, really any situation. And in this situation, it's one of the worst situations you can go through. And something that's very close to Poe, clearly. We've talked about, like, the the death of many people in his life. Um, But, man, is it cool. Like, when you start thinking about, like... Threading in things like Norse mythology and Roman mythology into the story, with like the idea of like a messenger raven and everything that he's saying, it's saying nevermore to, and he's taking that as like a sign. Um, it's so and, like, funny because, Odin- like
1: I said, he starts the poem off going like, "Oh, he just says that; it doesn't mean anything." Yeah. And then he has a protracted conversation, and he starts getting angry with it as it keeps saying nevermore, and he's like taking it to be like an actual answer. And that's that like that's the thing that Poe does so well, where like clearly his characters are like going mad. As we're reading about them and they, they sometimes are aware of it. They're sometimes not like the telltale heart, which we'll get to. I always loved how in that story, that the narrator of that is like, I'm not mad. Let me tell you how calmly and how meticulously I planned this. Like there's nothing mad about this as he goes on to describe, you know, like dismembering somebody and then like losing his mind over guilt of it. Um, So cool. And, and like the opening of this poem, one of the, one of the most iconic openings to like anything ever. Easily. I have yeah. to read it. So once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door "Tis some visitor. I muttered tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. And it goes on right in this. this, You can tell like how lyrical and rhythmic this is. And there's so much alliteration. Mm -hmm. It's almost sing songy. Yep, but he's doing all of this, and at the same time, it's so atmospheric and it's so gothic and and dark, and it's a raven and it's you know midnight dreary. Like it's it becomes one of the most evocative poems I think of all time because of that, and and also most like Halloween specific
0: ones. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, just a universal thing that people go through is loss too, and so like this is a character who's lost someone, and then yeah. the wishful thinking of someone knocking at your door. And what that means. And then as it goes on, he is basically like damning himself. He's like, will I meet Lenore again in the afterlife? Nevermore. Will I this? and Yeah. That? So, and so let me let me read that line. Because
1: that's that's towards the end of the poem. And I think a turning point, honestly, in the poem where he's like he's he's built this up and he and he, he wants to forget about Lenore. But he also desperately wants to remember. And then this, in that way that Poe does so well, where it's like both things are true. Right. Um, and finally, he's like convinced himself, like, fine, you're a prophet. You are sent from the underworld. You're here to tell me something. He says, prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels call Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore. "Quote the Raven, Nevermore." And that's like the turn where he's like, "No, I'm not ever gonna get to see her again." Like even at you know in heaven, he'll he'll be you know forbidden his Lenore. And then that's where he's like, "Get out of here, you, Raven! I hate you!" You know. And but then it's still there, tapping at his chamber door, like right? it like lives
0: on in the shadow and all this stuff. Like it's it's creepy. And the way that that the raven isn't meant to be necessarily physically there too. It's like this is or an it expression is. for it, both. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, right. I, yeah, it's it could all be a metaphor, or it could yeah. just be a raven that's saying a word, like he says at the start of the poem, that doesn't mean right. anything, and all the meaning he's giving to it is is his own creation.
0: Or both, which is definitely is both. Um, yeah. But the, so the end here, he's like in the shadow of the raven, the raven's ne- tapping on his door basically forever meant yep. to meant to say like yes you will deal with this forever and it, and it's a kind of that dark look at this is something that everyone will deal with and something that everyone will go And through. the idea
1: of it tapping right like it it's it's a it's a nuisance it, it it's always there it's bothering you it won't leave you alone. Yeah. And that that I love that too of like it's it's not just like a a a gentle melancholy it's it's a it's a thing in your life that is going to drive you mad and it does here yeah.
0: The other thing I love is, you know, the story starts out tapping on the door, he opens it, nothing's there. And he's like, you know, is this my beloved? Is this Lenore? And then uh, he closes it, comes back to the tapping on the door again, and then he sees the raven. And then he pulls up a chair and just sits down with the raven. And he's just chilling, thinking it's this amazing, like, you know, speaking, uh, speaking raven. And it starts, it it just has such a fun beginning. And And then it just like, it just gut punches you as it goes on. And when, when you start thinking about, like, whether it is really there, whether it and then a, another interesting side to it is if it is really there, is it sent by some, you know, demonic presence? Is it sent by some godly presence, whatever, you know, or yeah. is it just a bird saying nevermore because it heard some its previous owner was was, you know, uh, had and this, this perfectly horrible thing. It encapsulates it's, so
1: many of the themes that we're going to see in so many of these stories where it's like a character who is being who is so guilty and so heartbroken that he is being driven mad by those emotions and those um, and those that madness is manifesting in some way like this is the kind of stuff we'll see time and again in, in, in Poe's work as we go forward
0: yeah um, so cool um, we got to move on
1: to the last one here so we can get to our last story though all right so the cask of amontillado This is another very, very famous story because of its depiction of of this uh, this murder, and this is another thing that Poe is famous for. He writes these stories from the point of view of the killer. Um, This narrator is like calmly taking his friend, his supposed friend Fortunato, and he takes them from there. like. There's like some sort of revelry going on. He's out in the street and he's got bells and he's got you know he's he's been he's been having a good time. He's kind of drunk. And he comes up to him and he's like, "I got this wine, this cask of Amontillado, and I know you <laughs> love wine. Let's go see this thing. It's down in my like basement vaults. That's where I keep the wine." And so he's like, "All right, let's go." Um, and the whole time they're walking, um, Fortunato's like doing these little digs at him, right? Like he's talking about like, "Oh, you know, it, there's like a line where about how you formerly used to be, you know, rich and important, and, and you're not so much now." And we get the sense that they aren't really very good friends. Um, And our narrator clearly has something out for him, and I'll read read a a little bit from this story here too. He says, The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You who so well know the nature of my soul will not suppose, however, that gave utterance to a threat. At length, I would be avenged. This was a point definitely settled. The very definitiveness with which it is resolved, precluded the idea of risk I must not only punish but punish with impunity a wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser it is equally unredressed when the Avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong Um, so that's very twisty and and kind of like what is even being said here but basically it's like I am going to get back on him and I got to get back on him with impunity and it's going to be a big act of vengeance because this was a big insult. And to do anything less than that is like, you know, a failure. Um, yeah. and you're like, OK, well, what how big of a how big of a revenge are we talking about here? Yeah, that's that's kind of
0: what he <laughs> he lulls you into because it's a narrator, because you're in the yeah. perspective of a character like this. You assume that they have good intentions. You assume that they're you're on their side. And as the story goes on, you're like, man, this guy, yeah, he, he maybe you know he's going to trick him with with the wine or something like that something's going to happen here but as it as it travel and again i hadn't read the story i wasn't even aware of like what, okay. what the ending was going to be um and so i'm like oh this is guys dressed like a clown or dressed like a jester basically yep. um and this is you know, this carnival experience it seems like everybody's having fun and then you you get that the guy is a little unhinged the the narrator uh, yeah. what's his name monta He. He seems like he's like oh you know he sent his he told his staff at his home that they could go they, they needed to stay there which which he knew would send them off into the festivities and so you're like okay he's kind of cunning and conniving like something's yeah. going on here he, he wanted sent, he, them this gone. is all planned this is all very meticulously right. planned and it builds Fortunato up – Fortunato at the same time I think it's
1: interesting to note um, he he uh, keeps saying like oh you're such a you're such an aficionado you know you're so you're so your taste is so great and it's so refined like you have to be the one to come tell me if, if this is a true casco of amontillado and fortunato like is taking this like fancy wine that he gives him he's like let's drink this wine while we're on our way down and he takes it and he's just like pouring it back and chugging it um which is an interesting like counterpoint to the idea of him being like an aficionado right well he's, he's not clearly enjoying not, it he's yeah. not like He's just like a he's just drunk at this point. Yeah. So maybe this is all just like him also buttering him up like, oh, you're so you're such a you have
0: such fine taste. But maybe the guy doesn't really. I think it definitely is that I think that he maybe is like a brash character, a brash person who who stepped stepped over a line without even necessarily realizing it, you know, he's, he may have slight this person's clearly insane. By the end, we know that our, our main character is insane. My theory on this is that this character, Fortunato, did something to slight this person without even realizing it. And then this person is just so unhinged. Montressor. Yeah. There's some talk of like the Freemasons, I think. And he's like,
1: are, oh, are you, a, are you a member of the Masons? You know, and he's like, he, he's very insulting to him about like how he shouldn't be a member. And um, I, I forget exactly how it goes down. But this is like one of the last things that Fortunato is saying as they're right. arriving at this at this spot. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, basically he, he's like, here, come take a look at this with me. <laughs> and he goes to take a look and then he just like, there's some manacles in there. He binds, he, he binds him into this thing and he's in this like hole in the wall, shoves him in there. He gets clasped to the wall, chained, and then slowly <laughs> Mondresser just starts getting out the mortar, you know, getting out the, 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 um, trowel and he starts like, yep. Bricking him up, bricking him
0: up into the he's wall. He's like, "Oh, you don't think I could? I should be in the masons, huh?" And he's like, check yeah. me out. I'm stone. Ma- I'm I'm out here with a bunch of stone." During yeah. this time, Fortunato starts to like sober up, and he's like, "Ha ha, good joke, my friend.
1: One day we will look back at this with with delight, and we will laugh about this 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 moment." And he's like slowly bricking him up till like the last brick is there, and he's like looking in, like, "Oh, okay, yeah, you think this is a joke, do you?" Yeah. Um, and he's you know calling out to him and, uh, you know, our, our, our main character's just like, yeah, fuck this is, this is all part of my, of my revenge closes him in. And then we, we hear that like his body's there
0: like 50 years later. So like, that's the big reveal. Yeah. It's like 50 years on, you know, that that, um, he's recounting the story to himself, almost like a serial killer would like remember his kills or something.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, deep fear, right. Of just being bricked up in a wall and left like that's, you know, Again, yeah. that that idea of entombment is something that we'll see him come back to over and over again.
0: Yeah, I I'm curious. You know, I'm not like a literary literary historian or anything, but I I am curious, like how often perspectives from an anti antagon- somebody evil uh, were done. You know, I wonder if Poe yeah. was doing something. I have to imagine this edge. was
1: pretty. This was pretty uh, yeah. new for the time. Pretty Taboo, shocking for probably. people. Taboo, absolutely. Like, yeah, it's just to have read about heroic figures, not not villains who are like losing their minds as you're reading them.
0: Yeah. And, and for those reasons, I I think it's a really, you know, interesting story, probably probably pushing the envelope for yeah. that time period. So I think this is a, a really cool story. It's one of his most
1: famous. Um, this is one we've heard is also very influential in the story or, or in the adaptation we're about to watch. So I'm, I'm like curious if we're gonna see somebody get bricked up on a wall at some point. But um I love that there's also some back backstory to this that gives it an interesting context. So uh, the theory goes that Poe wrote this tale as a response to a personal rival, Thomas Dunn English. So Poe and English had had several confrontations, usually revolving around literary caricatures of one another. Poe thought that one of English's writings went a bit too far and successfully sued the other man's editors uh, for libel in 1846. So English had published a revenge-based novel in 1844 called The Power of SF, The plot was so convoluted and difficult to follow, but made references to secret societies and ultimately had a main theme of revenge, it included a character named Marmaduke Hammerhead. He was a famous author called The Black Crow, who uses phrases like nevermore and lost Lenore, which refers to uh, Poe's poem The Raven. This parody of Poe was depicted as a drunkard, a liar, and an abusive lover. So he publishes this novel in which there's this character right and poe's like fuck you (laughs) so he writes this story writes the cask of amontillado um and apparently uh fortunato and the reference to the secret society of masons was also a reference to this novel and like how it had been all about the masons Hmm. um and yeah this this, this idea of the character who was like a supposed friend or supposed like uh you know someone who who is like oh your taste is so good everyone talks about how you're so great at your wine tasting right and if you take that out to be like literary taste and sure. taste as a writer and you know bricks him up in a wall <laughs> so for i mean that
0: <laughs> kind of a threat at some point you know like, like i'm telling Pope, you man this is how this guy was he was I'll like fucking he put you in a wall. fights with everybody <laughs> yeah i mean I, I like it more for that reason i think it's you know yeah. a little a little unhinged and a little a little. Uh, You know, mean, but it sounds like it's also like, like, yeah, it's like back and forth. Like, you don't know who you're fucking with. Yeah. (laughs) I will brick
1: you into a wall. I'm that insane.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think recontextualize, because I I kept talking about the other two stories as Poe insert stories. So now that I have that information, like recontextualizing this is a Poe insert story as well. Like, you know, the character's so meticulous and and cunning and planned the whole thing. And just yeah. merciless, right? Like, he didn't care when the other guy's, like, saying, you know, get me out of here. We'll laugh yeah. about this one day. He's like, no, this is all part of my revenge. He dressed the other character in a gesture. You know, he's like, you're a fucking yep. joke to me. You're well, a gesture. Yeah, yeah. The, guy
1: was, the guy was kind of a fool throughout, right? Like, he was not depicted in a flattering way. Right. Um, so, yeah, I just thought, I thought that was a fun little backstory. Because I think the story obviously still works on its own. But, like, having that backstory definitely gives some fun context for this. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I think this is where we're going to have to leave this episode. Um, I'm going to be at World Fantasy uh, next week and I'm going to be moderating a panel that is about the legacy of Stephen King. Um, So should be super cool. If you're going to be at World Fantasy by chance in Kansas City, come check it out. Should be fun. Looking forward to that. But like, yeah, this is where we're going to leave this one for now. I'm excited to get into the actual adaptation, Um, you know, see, see where Flanagan takes all of this. Um, but I, I feel like this is a really good foundation for us to build on now as we, as we go into the show.
0: Yeah. I'm really excited and, and have been anticipating the show for a while. So really excited to get into that, see what Flanagan's going to do with it. And then read more Poe. We're going to read more Poe as we, as Absolutely. we, re, you know, get more into the show. Uh, what are you going to do by the way, if in the audience, there's a, there's a, a wild Stephen King just happened to be in, in the, the <laughs> um, audience of your panel. Yeah. At world fantasy in Kansas yeah. city. Somehow yeah. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But
1: if you enjoyed this episode, you enjoyed our coverage of Edgar Allan Poe, let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. And if you're on YouTube, make sure to subscribe, like the video and leave a comment. Let us know in the comments. We love to talk with people in there. Um, You know, I'm excited for this one. So I hope other people are as well.
0: And make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, TikTok, all the places. And, uh, you know, send us a message on there. Make sure you're following like the videos on YouTube, all that good stuff. And if you'd like to support us another way, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film, and you can get
1: access to our bonus episodes, uh, which we will be recording a new one very soon. We're going to be talking about my uh, current situation in my querying my novel and where I'm at with that and some recent things that have happened there. So um, if you're curious about that, Check us out on Patreon. It's uh, for as little as two bucks. You can get all kinds of bonus content. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of
0: our intro and outro music.
1: All right. Well, happy Halloween, everyone. Hopefully you're enjoying the season as much as we are. And until next time, keep adapting.